0: The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Frank Latuca, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, politics! Welcome, everybody, to the politics, politics, politics program for December 4th, 2020. My pal Justin Robert Young joining you yet again uh, on a real rocky road of an episode, man. We've got we've got some ups, we've got some downs, we've got a little mystery for you. Is a COVID deal actually going to happen? Two principals that have held things up to this point have <gasps> spoken. Speaking of COVID, lockdowns are back for a sizable portion of the country. We'll have the latest there. And your mailbag. A lot of great emails, including a few questions about COVID. I guess this is a lot. This is a COVID-y episode. Uh, There's a lot of COVID talk and some talk about exactly how much, an existential question for this mailbag. How much do you even like this show right now? Not because you think that it's good or bad or the quality has gotten uh, uh, significantly different, but are you just ready to turn off politics or is there a reason why you are compelled to continue listening? Ah, a little bit of a, a little bit of an existential idea. All that, plus an interview with a man who dug into one of the internet's greatest mystery men. Matt Drudge, icon uh, on the World Wide Web, political firebrand, media fascination. We get way into it here in this interview. Uh, uh, He is the author of the Tablet Magazine piece, Matt Drudge Logs Off, and uh, dude, just a great article, great article, intrigue, gossip, personal uh, uh, issues, the shadowy world of web advertising, it's all there for you. And the fragile egos of media people. If you enjoy hearing about the fragile egos of the media, then you're going to need to listen to this interview. First! We will have an agreement. These are the words. Of Nancy Pelosi, the two looming figures in any COVID relief negotiation have, and forever will be, at least for the foreseeable governmental future, be Nancy Pelosi and cocaine Mitch McConnell. The president is really sidelined on this, and and has been. And today, a spokesman for Nancy Pelosi said that at 12.45 Eastern Time, those two spoke by phone about their shared commitment for completing an omnibus and COVID relief as soon as possible. Before McConnell spoke with Pelosi he met with the group of Senate Republican moderates who had supported the $908 billion coronavirus relief bill that, to this point, even in our PX3 episode yesterday, he was very cool on. And now it looks like if he's talking to Pelosi and he's talking to them either that framework or some adjusted version of that framework might be what we fight on. So, what exactly is in that bill? Number one, $160 billion for state and local governments. This is something that the Republicans in the Senate have been staunchly against. And indeed, any kind of pushback that President Trump has given... On coronavirus relief, it's been about the state and local governments getting billions of dollars. So what do, what does everybody agree on that's in this bill? Or this framework, rather? $180 billion in additional unemployment insurance. So now you might be able to get some unemployment benefits going forward. $288 billion in new funding for the Paycheck Protection Program. That is the ability for your business to stay open and pay your employees while there are shutdowns. $16 billion for vaccine development and distribution, as well as virus testing and tracing. What did Mitt Romney say about their meeting? Quote, we described the nature of our proposal and what we had seen before, of course, was a number of state and local of $160 billion, And we described how it would be allocated and how it would be distributed, some portions based on population, some portion based on revenue gap that might exist locally and so forth. So it, it sounds like what the moderates were doing with McConnell is assuaging him that giving money to these states and the local governments is not going to immediately be a gigantic fiasco or a giveaway that would embarrass the republicans in the senate. And just to show exactly the role that Donald Trump is playing in this and and I don't mean that to to say that he is done a terrible job here. I just think that he's he's not somebody he's somebody that would probably sign whatever. He's fine with it just coming across the desk and 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 signing it. He was the main negotiating point with with Pelosi before uh, but they needed something that could get through the Senate and that was McConnell. So Donald Trump signaling yet again, I want it to happen and I believe they're getting very close to a deal. If uh, asked if he would support it and sign it, he said, I will. He did all this by the way, by giving the presidential medal of freedom to former football coach, Lou Holtz. Anybody who's ever heard Lou Holtz, Lou Holtz talk. What a character. He does magic, by the way. You can look up magic tricks by Lou Holtz. He did a torn and restored newspaper on ESPN once. That's the kind of factoids you find on the PX3 show. All right, something a little bit more serious here for you, and that is the government reaction to our current COVID-19 spike. We had a few states... Uh, Put in some versions of lockdowns before the holiday season, up to and including Oregon, New Mexico, and Washington. But one of the big shoes fell today, and that is here in California, where I am speaking with you right now. Embattled Governor Gavin Newsom, fresh off a scandal where he was defying his own COVID orders by having a big, loud, raucous birthday party at the Tony French Laundry restaurant in Napa. He has uh, announced as of Thursday that California, as a state, will face stay-at-home orders, and they will not be done county by county The entire state will be separated into five regional hospital networks. And the restrictions will be put in place when ICU capacity gets below 15%. Details on this are still coming in. But if there are only five of these, then assume one for the Bay Area, one for Los Angeles... Uh, and at that point, I, I guess I mean they might group Orange County and LA together. Maybe San Diego and and that southern region, uh, south of LA, is another the the Central Valley, which is a tremendous stretch of land, but far more rural. And then I guess Eureka and and that northern area of california i don't know if sacramento would be part of the bay area but five regions does that, that's a lot that's a lot and that means that if these if the the region falls below 15% icu then the following happens residents will be un- either, uh, unable to gather Playgrounds, salons, and restaurant dining will have to close. Food takeout will still be allowed. And hotels can only open for critical infrastructure support. Okay, so at the time of of my recording here, uh, uh, this is all still coming in. But uh, we now have what the five regions are going to be. And great googly moogly. uh, (laughs) One of these is massive. Uh, It is Northern California, the Sacramento area, the Bay area, the Joaquin Valley, so that's the Central Valley of California, and then Southern California. And that is basically a U that that envelopes everything that's not the Central Valley of California. These are massive. And they are going to shut down soon. And with them will come fairly serious lockdown measures that I just described. How soon? Here's California Governor Gavin Newsom. As early or rather as late as the next week or so, uh, that the greater Sacramento, Northern California regions, as well as San Joaquin Valley and Southern California regions will have reached that 15% or less ICU capacity. The Bay Area may have a few extra days, our current Projections uh, suggest mid, maybe late December, but all within just the next few weeks. That Uh, means that the most populous state in the union, damn near 40 million American citizens will be under lockdown within the next 14 days. The idea that within 48 hours, that massive, go look at this. The, the Southern California hospital region that they have is just gargantuan. Like, not only do they not split up, they don't split up L.A. and Orange County, which is south of it, but it's essentially another massive population hub. They don't separate uh, uh, San Diego, Santa Barbara, any of those coastal towns. Any of the places that you drive through to get from L.A. to Vegas. whoo! How did Sacramento get its own region? That's crazy. Also, all non-essential travel is now illegal in the state of California. If these are the measures being taken now here, and again... California led the way in in a lot of these lockdown procedures. Last time, I wonder where we're going to go now. Uh, The second most populous state in the union is Texas. So far, their governor, Greg Abbott, has said that there is no lockdown coming. Uh, I would probably expect... The same kind of messaging from Ron DeSantis in Florida, the third most populous state. Politics. They ask me did I go deep in my bag, and I tell them I showed sure you. You can always send us an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Brett writes, I suspect you'll get emails about Matthias's interview last Friday, so I'll keep mine school-specific. His surprise that the nation hasn't found consensus against school lockdowns is one of somebody who's analyzing the situation in the abstract and not looking at broader issues. I live with a Chicago teacher, the third largest district in the nation. In session, they have at least six groups of 35 students a day in a room with 25 chairs. Socially distanced, maybe 10 could fit. Students stand, sit on the ground, work at the teacher's desk, and so on. That's in an attractive school in a quote-unquote good neighborhood. Many communities of the south and west sides are underserved and full of students whose families work essential jobs and aren't work from home. Many of these schools have no heat in the winter, poor ventilation, and are even more overcrowded. One only needs to look at our, to our neighbors in Indiana. They open schools without the right funding and restrictions and have seen nearly 9,000 cases from students and staff. When the governor lifted Indiana's distancing restrictions, it saw a 200% increase in COVID and the rolling death average neared to its highest in April. TLDR, it's bonkers to make sweeping generalizations about schools like Matthias did. And there are numbers in states like Illinois and Indiana that don't support his theory that lockdowns aren't particularly effective either. He acknowledged his own bias, which I appreciate, but there's a reason a lot of urban centers are staying locked up, and it's not just because of liberal trepidation. Uh, I would actually, Brett, I would encourage you to to interact with with, uh, Matthias, who, by the way, I totally gave you guys the wrong name. He is not polymath on Twitter. That is another person p-o-l-i math on twitter he calls himself polymath but he is at political math on twitter i would encourage you to go uh, interact with him because uh he, he is very open and transparent about his data and i would be curious to see how he would respond to being challenged on that clay writes the ataris had a hit who knew I thought I was the only one in my high school who knew about him in 2003. Man, there are a lot of some 41 fans out there. I'll tell you what, man, I was I, I had a I had maybe an hour and a half back and forth over text with Garrett Weinzerl, host of uh, So Let's Talk About Star Wars and the Angry Chicken and co host on the Instance podcast, because he was lighting me up about how much more famous and influential. Sum Forty One was, but I uh, uh, I stand by my statement. I stand by my statement. Although I will concede that they're probably a two hit wonder because I forgot about in too deep, fat lip and in too deep. Those are the Sum Forty One songs. Radical Woody writes, "Hey, Jerry, I was reading an ep- uh, an essay by Simone Weil, super interesting French philosopher. Away or, or we- Weil and oh, whatever Weil." and was struck by a quote that feels relevant to modern politics and figured you might find an interesting thought for the brain mill. Quote, The material of the political art is the double perspective, ever shifting between the real conditions of social equilibrium and the movements of collective imagination. It's from her essay, A Note on Social Democracy, about the brief socialist French government of Léon Blum, but mostly focuses on how imagination plays a huge role in government. Radical Woody, thanks for keeping this uh, segment smart. I do love that kind of stuff. Maybe we should delve more into that. Although that would be a good... Ooh, I should hit up Heaton. That's a good Heaton episode. I should have Heaton on and just ask him, hey, what is the role of imagination in government? Jordan writes, Question. Question. Have you actually watched any of the hearings between the members of the legislature of Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, and the Trump legal teams and the witnesses that are providing testimony? Comment. I think any reasonable person who has actually watched these hearings would conclude that there was widespread election fraud and that it likely changed the result of the election. Whether or not that will be enough to convince these legislators to exercise their constitutional power to appoint electors themselves to change the outcome is another matter that is yet to be resolved. I have watched all of these hearings, and it appears that each of these states is going to at least have a vote on a resolution declaring that the election was not conducted in a proper manner and will likely have an additional vote on whether or not to appoint the electors themselves comment the format and presentation of the show has drifted quite a bit and i don't like it much anymore the last show i had a chance to listen to uh which was a px3 extra episode on november 30th your voice is amazing But it sounds like you're reading off a script of a teleprompter for a nightly news segment. But you can't see clearly because the teleprompter is shaking. And it's the content you haven't actually reviewed yet. But you still try to throw inflection in your voice to carry through the lengthy pauses. It not only falls flat, it sounds cringy. I miss the days when it was more of a free-flowing shooting the ass about the events of the day. It's sounding more and more like the animated nightly newscast I grew up watching at dinner in the 90s. I started listening and kept listening because you weren't that. More poop jokes. Less Dan Rather, please. Uh, well, let's go in order. I have watched some of the hearings, and again, I... I I do, I wish there were just a better name because hearings implies that they are a legal event. They're not a legal event. They are demonstrations, exhibitions. I'm not saying they're not valuable. I'm just saying when you say hearings, people think court, right? Jordan, if there's one thing that I hope goes to the core of why anybody would listen to me... It's that I am not here to tell you who's right. I'm here to tell you who will win. Do you find these testimonies compelling? Okay. I've listened to a bunch. Some I find to be kind of rehashing of information I was well aware of, including a lot of the stuff about uh, voting machines. You know, this This stuff has been out there for anybody who's wanted to pay attention to it for a very long time. I, I've gotten heat for saying that we do have elements of voter fraud and have for a very long time in this country that I bristle at the idea whenever anybody says, well, there's voting fraud is all but a meaningless. No, I mean, I, I don't know. You don't know. And nobody knows. I do know it likely exists it would surprise me if it does not exist the question is to what level but Jordan the reason why I have not talked a lot about these is because I think that this is immaterial to who's gonna win maybe we get those votes but I don't believe that they are going to uh, put in their own electors and when the electoral college gathers I do believe that Joe Biden will be officially the president elect of the United States. Should I see actual movements by those state legislatures to make that thought something that is is not real or or I need to change my opinion on, then I'll tell you. But right now I don't think it is. And indeed, like I've said in in other shows, I think Donald Trump is slowly coming to grips with it. And if Trump is slowly coming to grips with it, then it vis-a-vis would mean that he believes less. As for the format of the show, and I'll take this at face value, despite, you know, one could say that maybe you're pissed off that I'm not covering things in a certain way, and 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 you're taking it out in the format of the show. But I will I will take it seriously. Uh, uh, you know I don't I don't know I I I've tried to bring a, a an element of professionalism to the show to kind of sand the edges and make this something that people would be uh, proud to share with their friends. I want this to be something that continues to grow because I I ultimately believe that this is a genre of political commentary that is rare. I'm trying not to do things that other people are doing. Is my cadence maybe becoming too robotic? You know, I'll, I'll listen back. I'll listen back. Thank you for your email. Jay writes, you have on at least two different occasions brought up that the U.S. has tested more and transparently than most of the countries and consequently resulted in more case numbers. I would like to make the case uh, that that reality is the other way around. We have done more testing in this country because we have more cases. If you think about how testing is done, this seems more plausible. Other than the medical staff, caregivers and some schools, there is no regular testing program that randomly tests the population. After some stumbling in the beginning, we quickly ramped up our testing capacity for several months. Now the number of tests we have done has uh, not even come close to our full testing capacity. The total number of tests has been uh, limited by capacity for testing, but the number of infections. People get tested either because they are experiencing symptoms or because they've been exposed to somebody who was tested positive. I'm sure there are a few exceptions, but I doubt that they are statistically significant. So... As the number of infections increases, the number of tests goes up and vice versa. If you believe this to be accurate, using the number of tests per capita doesn't really tell us if we, if we are doing enough testing. We can compare the per capita test to a European country to see that what we are doing by order of magnitudes, uh, but that doesn't mean much if the number of infections here are also an order of magnitude higher. The number we should really talk about is the positivity rate, what percentage of tests are returning positive, If we are really doing a lot of tests, then that number should be low, right? It's not. Jay, where I think we might be separate in our thoughts is what constitutes I have what I believe are symptoms I need to go get a test and then how easy it is and comparing that to other countries. Like the the thing that I do believe America should get credit for is that it's not uh it, it's not an insignificant thing to run 800,000 tests a day. It requires a lot of effort. If it were easy, everybody would do it. So when I say that America should be proud about the number of case, uh, tests that it runs, that's mostly what I'm talking about. That being said, Considering how divergent this virus is, case to case, that some people have it and are asymptomatic, some people have it and have very mild mild symptoms, and some people die, the idea that people have peace of mind in being able to get a test, I think is important. And I do think does, by its very nature, turn up more cases if somebody... Has the ability to go get a test at a point where they would be, uh, uh they would test positive for it because there is a time window thing here, and don't just sit home and try to write it out, which I would presume is the case in an area where testing is not readily available. So, I think where where you are are. Putting my argument, and, and it is a failure of, of mine to communicate, if this is what I sounded like, is that case numbers are inflated because we have a lot of testing. I don't believe that. I believe that our case numbers are our case numbers are our case numbers. What I think we should derive pride in is that our eyes are wide open because of the amount of tests that we run. They are more wide open than other countries. And that's really my only point. And finally, Jason writes, I realize your politics podcast has become vegetables to me. I have sort of a priority list for podcasts. Right now, it's Garrett and Tom and Jenny on Let's Talk About Star Wars, followed by Night Attack Happy Hour, followed by Night Attack Proper, a slew of Hearthstone podcasts, Ice Cream Social, and then whatever's left. Political Orphanage and PX3 are not on that list. What happens, at least lately, is I see in my feed and think, should I listen to this? Sometimes I see the title and say, oh, that sounds awesome. Those are the green beans. Sometimes it's something I don't understand, like Machiavelli or John Stuart Mill. Those are heat and podcasts. Those are the veggies I've never tried, so I might give it a go, or I might order it and leave it on the plate. And sometimes the subject is Brussels sprouts, and I'm out. Let me be clear. It's not that I don't love and adore your shows. I, uh, I always enjoy them. But I always have to think, is this what I want to be ingesting right now, or do I just want steak or pie? I realized this today when I was walking my dog, and I thought I should listen to something. I'm going to enjoy, and I should eat my vegetables. Happily, I'm in the middle of you and Andrew and Jen sh- uh, shooting the S about AOC and Mitch, so it's great. Thank you for being veggies I might actually eat. Jason, thank you. If you would like to have your email read on this show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're at the end of the year, right? Everybody's uh, figuring out what they're doing for Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. Obviously, there's a lot of hectic stuff going on, and I know, both by your feedback and where the Patreon has gone in the last month, that, like the emailer mentioned, people are taking a bit of a political holiday right now. And I understand. But you want to know who this is really for. Everyone who's listening to me right now. Yeah. Oh, it's so sad to see people go. Let them go. Taurus. The right? Everybody that was just showing up to Rubberneck. Now, we get back to talking to each other. Finally... It's back to just us. Yes, fluff up your neck beards. Hims, hers, theys and thems. Because it's nerd time once again. Finally, the idea of this being must watch and listen to to everybody on the planet, gone. Let's get back to the way it used to be. Let's get back to us discussing politics in the way that that, that could actually spur a conversation without turning into something that would fracture your entire worldview and social net. Ah, for the nerds, is PX3. And the nerds, if you want more, and there's something that nerds always want, is more, we can get it right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Get our three dollar bonus tier, two extra shows a, uh, a week. Take politics seriously. Our guest today is Armin Rosen. He is a writer for Tablet Magazine, and his most recent article is "Matt Drudge Logs Off." about the mysterious internet pioneer, whether or not he still even runs his eponymous website, and everything that makes the mystique around Matt Drudge what it is. You can find Armin on Twitter, at Armin Rosen. Welcome to the show, Armin.
1: Great to be here, thanks for having me on.
0: Now, uh, there's, there's many ways that we can begin this interview. But uh I will I will start because the audience always loves whenever we kind of get inside the bizarre world of journalism. Uh that uh, I will ask you to confirm what I very much believe <laughs> that love or hate the politics of Matt Drudge if you came of age anytime within the late 90s to the the late 10s if you are A journalist and therefore a news junkie, you were an obsessive refresher of the Drudge Report, correct? Yep.
1: It was America's front page. People called Drudge America's assignment editor uh, because so much of the media was working with Matt Drudge in in the back of their minds. And very often in the front of their minds as well, Uh, the guy was really kind of, he towered in the psychology of the American media for such a long time and And still does to like kind of a a weird kind of a weird way, yeah.
0: and and that's i I think the the biggest thing that is a disconnect for some people to hear that, obviously listening to it on a political podcast is that yeah. you you have to divorce the idea that there's is, Drudge is obviously a politically motivated figure. And yeah. yet he kind of did wholly uh, if not separately, then distinctly operate in this like oh no he's the news value barometer for whatever reason this right. guy in Miami Beach and whatever mysterious coterie of uh, uh, associates determined whether or not uh, a a bizarre story was news or even the big news story was news
1: right and there were so many theories about that it's like you know 10 15 years ago you would read about kind of this information cycle where Stories would wind up on Drudge, and then Fox News would pick them up, and then eventually they'd be talked about enough on Fox News that, like, the Times would have to pay attention to them. And there was this sense that the Drudge Report could actually kind of drive media cycles, like, single-handedly in a way. Um, But also, you know, that was a time where, uh, you know, as you put it, sort of like the information barometer or, like, the importance barometer. Today we have kind of a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, you know there's like advanced analytics uh, of who's reading what. Um, you know, I worked at a place, a business insider for a few years um before I started working a tablet where they would actually tell you how many hits an article had, like right underneath the headline, yeah, um. But Drudge was really one of the first. I, I mean, such I'm sure. I'm sure that was great for. Media.
0: I'm sure that was great for for the ego of writers to have your hit number right under your uh, right under the headline. Oh, it was horrible. They got <laughs> they got rid
1: of it. They got rid of it not long after I left. Like I think they started to realize that this was kind of a little bit too much for people. Gawker used to do that too, by the way. Yeah. It's, oh a yeah. A yeah. lot of places used to do that. But uh, like Drudge was the first sort of way of testing. You know, the question of what people actually wanted to read and why. And and kind of before the late 90s, I don't think anybody in the media really thought that much about it. It's just like the Times or the Post would set the agenda. Things were important because they were published in Time magazine or Newsweek or something. Um, And Drudge was one of the first people to really kind of break that open and create the world that we currently find ourselves in kind of for better you know, for worse,
0: <laughs> I, I think part for better it, and worse, I think part of it is that for that website, a super fast to open, super fast to browse. You, you were yeah. incentivized to do it multiple times a day. And it the dude had a great news value, like from from the from the weird, bizarre stuff to the politically motivated stuff. He knew he had this very. Like, if it bleeds, it leads uh, a a bigger, crazier sort of news judgment that I think for journalists for whom discerning news value is a large part of the job before you start writing, you got to decide what to write about or what to pitch your editor on, you'd be like, well, hell, if I'm going here and I'm finding stuff, then that means that there has to be some worth to it. But uh, uh, your story, which I think uh, for any sort of drudge – Uh, uh, obsessive there's there's these few dots of like okay where do we get the peak behind the curtain on who this obviously mysterious person is and over the last year there has been a marked change in tone from the drudge report so let's start there in terms of your reporting uh, of how much of the beginning of this story for you is this thing that's been kind of whispered certainly in conservative circles and in journalist circles of like, all right, right." Like maybe Matt Drudge isn't the biggest Trump fan, but like, is he actively trying to take down this guy that many would assume he partly made?
1: Well, look, it's like, you know, all the best stories in journalism begin with convincing yourself there's some mystery that you can go out and solve. (laughs) And like, What happened to the Drudge Report seemed like a solvable mystery at the time that I started kind of looking into it. Like, there had been all of these rumors about a sale, and then, you know, you kind of hypothesize in your mind, like, well, you know, would it really be that out of the question for, you know, like a liberal multimillionaire billionaire to secretly buy off Matt Drudge? In the context of the 2020 election, like, no, it's actually not that ridiculous of a thing for somebody to try to attempt at all. Um, you know, and you start to wonder, well, is there actually any evidence of that? There's certainly a lot of kind of behind the scenes chatter that something like that has happened. Yeah. Uh, but then the the true story ended up being, or at least the story in, so, in what I could find and prove ended up being like a bit more human than all of that in a way. Uh, Drudge has seen like a pretty deep dive in traffic over the past Couple of years, as best anybody can tell, Um, this didn't go in the article. This was something I only learned days later. Uh, But Drudge had a Quantcast account that he deleted about three months ago, and Quantcast is like a web analytics tool, right? Which actually allows other Quantcast users to see the amount of traffic that your page gets. Gotcha. Um, So people who had seen his Quantcast prior, his Quantcast numbers prior to its deletion, said that they were. Actually, it did show like a fairly marked dip in his audience the past couple of years. And Drudge has also been at this for an extreme, extremely long time. And one of the biggest changes that nobody really disputes about the Drudge Report right now is that it's just not as current as it used to be. It's not updated as many times a day. You don't see news posted on it as it happens. I mean, Drudge 15 or you know, odd years ago was almost like Twitter is now. Oh, where I, I, I you would I, find out about news immediately as soon as it happened because it was on
0: Drudge. I I, I remember just one of those like newsroom memories where yeah. it's like two or three o'clock in the morning and either I'm on Drudge Report or so I, I look over at somebody else's computer and I'm learning about like a rocket attack in Israel with like, yeah. you know, the, the, the GIF going off at three o'clock in the morning Eastern time. So somebody is up. And, and, and updating this thing, and it was faster than CNN, right. faster than any other website that, that had news value would, yeah. would do it. And now that is simply not happening is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, it's not happening nearly as much. Um, so you have changes on kind of the front end where it's just not as, as quickly updating a site as it used to be. And it, it, clearly there's much far fewer links that are being posted, and also there are fewer people reading it. So it's just kind of this different thing. On the back end, though, the site has also become a very sort of different kind of place. Um, you know, sort of something I went in pretty deep depth in, in the article. Uh, so I, I tried to, although. Well, a here, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think I think I know where you're going. I want I want to right. kind of save that for, for a separate thing. Let me let me okay, ask it, you real quick about the the staffing and the updating. Uh, Matt Drudge is somebody that has a bit of a, a coach's tree as it were in, in the football yes. parlance. He uh, uh, worked with Andrew Breitbart, who of course starts Breitbart news uh, 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 up until his death. Uh, there is a, a kind of like, again, it, it's not very well known because Matt Drudge is not somebody that does a lot of interviews, uh, uh, you know, really at all, uh, except for, I guess like an Alex Jones thing where he was just yelling right. from off screen. And, uh, how many people do you believe at its heyday worked on that website compared to how many people that you could guess or or, or suss out with your reporting in 2020?
1: I've heard that at its height there were three or four people there. Um, That's not, you know, I think uh, other people who have looked into the judge report and written about it have found kind of a similar number of, maybe not employees, but like collaborators that they can prove at a given time like three or four. Now, the last person who's been publicly linked to the Drudge Report is Daniel Halper, uh, who used to be an editor of the Weekly Standard. Um, you'll you'll find very different kind of speculation about whether or not he still has any involvement there. Uh, it's not a question that I could find any sort of definitive answer on. But th- this is the first time, I'd say, at least since, you know, 2017 or so, where nobody really knows who works there. Yeah. Um you know, and people don't even really have an educated guess as to who works there in in a way. Uh right, the sort of coaches tree that you mentioned kind of dried up, you know, kind of a while ago. Yeah. And and there you know, and there there are people sort of here and there who have had a hand in, you know, who are known to have uh kind of had a hand in drudge at some point or another. Um but now there's right people really have no sense of who's helping who if anyone is kind of helping him run it
0: and and i wonder how much of that is because conservative media really sort of has grown up in the intervening point between when matt drudge you know breaks politics with the lewinsky scoop uh to now like now there are generations upon generations of people that have kind of come up and become famous and are now starting their own little media empires for which Matt Drudge, which was always a very thin, uh, a staff, if at all, uh, a, yeah. you know, he's just less relevant. I, I want to talk to you about the ideology of the site for a sure. second. He's obviously been, uh, long linked to Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter was a huge supporter of Donald Trump coming into the white house had a you know famous moment about uh, a year and a half in where she became disillusioned with Trump and uh, was very very critical of him so when i read the site and i saw more and more trump critical to eventually flat out anti trump stuff i presumed yeah. that it's like oh, okay all right well if they're tight then maybe that's just where the wind is blowing uh, uh, in in your reporting how much uh, have have that uh, did, did that bear out um
1: Again, this is something that no one has any really definitive yeah. kind of answer. Yeah, let me let me, let me, let, me, also, let, me of, let me also let me also let me also say, yeah.
0: yeah, let me just say for everybody, I'm putting Armin in a very uh, weird position <laughs> because all of this is Kremlinology, right? Like we're all right. wondering years, about yeah. where this painting is being moved and whether or not somebody's fallen out of favor. So there's going to be no sort of hard answers here because the guy right. doesn't talk to anybody, and anybody that might have talked to him may or may not be lying to you if they're talking to you at all. So, but uh, please, everybody. take take that with a grain of salt but go ahead
1: so the last sort of public statement that Dr- that drudge ever really kind of made uh was a, a 13 minute appearance on michael savage's radio show in early 2017 michael savage is uh you know of course this very kind of heterodox extremist of some kind or mm-hmm. another <laughs> uh big trump fan obviously Um, And Drudge sort of, you know, he he said that his big kind of complaint about Trump is that Trump was letting the Democrats and a lot of Republicans kind of roll him um, and that he was in danger of his presidency falling apart. This is like in February of 2017 or something like that, like or March, like very, very early early on. on. Yeah. Like the first hundred days or something like that, you could sense that maybe uh, Drudge was feeling a little bit let down by Trump who ended up being a somewhat less serious figure than maybe, maybe Drudge had hoped. Interestingly, in the, in the months after that, um, and around the same time, Drudge was reportedly, uh, you know, kind of guided through the white house by Jared Kushner. Um, you know, this is somebody who had fairly, you know, access at like the highest levels of power, uh, during the, you know, a crucial sort of period of the Trump administration. Um, the, the really interesting question that I think is like impossible for anybody to answer is whether Drudge's disillusionment with Trump was political or more personal, mm. uh, whether whether it's that, you know, maybe it is the Ann Coulter explanation where Trump wouldn't build the wall and Drudge felt betrayed. That's a possibility. Uh, there's another possibility that there were people inside of Trump's orbit who kind of rubbed him the wrong way. And there's been... You know, some interesting gossipy kind of reporting about that, uh, you know, about, you know, the Drudge heard some kind of disparaging remark that was attributed to one of Kushner's people. And Ah. there's a Washington Examiner column about this a year or so ago. But then there's kind of like the metaphysical third explanation uh, or more metaphysical kind of explanation, I guess, which is that Drudge is just not the kind of guy to really trust anyone for any significant amount of time. Um, who he's not already very, very tight with. Um, And it's just sort of a pattern of his to discard people um, based on slights that are so small that the people themselves don't even remember them. And supposedly when Drudge cuts people off, he does it like totally for good. It's not as if he's ever going to come back to you. Yeah, Um, And maybe... You know, that kind of dynamic reproduced itself with the president of the United States, (laughs) which is kind of a really fascinating thing. If you stop and think about it, where for Drudge, who's, you know, been this very successful and powerful, you know, kind of master of his own world for 20 odd years. Yeah. uh, Maybe there was no real difference between, you know, David Horowitz. Right. The kind of far right guy who Drudge had been friends with until. Horowitz tried to raise money for his legal defense fund in 2003, uh, which Drudge took offense at maybe there's actually no difference between like that guy and like the president in sort of the larger worldview of Matt Drudge. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, that's kind of the explanation that I, that I tend towards though, uh, that it wasn't as ideological so much as personal in some way. That's very hard to disentangle.
0: Um, Which I I guess it makes makes a lot of sense because uh, I don't know of a president in history that has been more media focused and savvy than Donald Trump. All you have to do is go back to during the campaign in 2016 when uh, uh, his, uh, I think it was either his voicemail or somebody else's voicemail got, oh no, it was Trump's voicemail that got hacked and it was just filled with journalists saying, oh, thank you for donating to my charity, or thank you for doing this. <laughs> like, he has a back channel. It, it no doubt involved Drudge, but also, like, I, I don't think he ever really got access like that, certainly not to Clinton, certainly, I mean, maybe to to, to outside rims of, of the Bush orbit, but I don't think W was was picking oh, up the a, phone and chatting here, to him. Here's,
1: here, here's a fun kind of story about that that didn't make it in the article. Okay.
0: um, the uh,
1: The Bush campaign... forget if it was the Bush campaign or the RNC or both had kind of designated points of contact with drudge. Yeah. Um, Right. So the, the two, I believe the 2004 George Bush presidential campaign um, had like a point of contact with drudge, like a designated emissary to Matt drudge. Um, And I think that guy is now the governor of Alabama. (laughs) 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 So really, there's an interest. Yes. I forget. I forget his name, but like, or maybe it's the governor of Arkansas, one of the two Southern A states, the yeah. governor is currently someone who was at one point the designated Republican Party point of contact with Matt Drudge.
0: The Drudge guy. Uh, he was the Drudge like, guy.
1: Right. Right. Like, that's that's how important Drudge was, that even before oh, yeah. the emergence of, like, a Donald Trump type, you would have, like, an ambassador to Matt Drudge for, like, an entire American political party.
0: And that, <laughs> I think, and you, uh, you, you, you lead... Your story, which, again, I I made mandatory reading for everybody who listens to this podcast. So if you have not read it, please go read it. Wow. Thank you. But the lead and your story is the idea that Matt Drudge would not go full break the Internet three siren gifts for this Hunter Biden story to kind of demonstrate either by will or political inclination that that man has changed. And. Uh, you you need to look no further than the two thousand and and uh, uh, four, uh, Bush campaign where, you know, a, a lot of the the swift boat stuff sort of begins there. I mean, like that's that's where yep. a lot of a lot of the marching orders kind of came from. Was was how much if yeah. if Drudge was putting his shoulder into it, then it meant something, right, right. Uh, and
1: and again, it just, it seems to, it just seemed to clash so much with his basic philosophy of life, um, not to really kind of raise a stink about the New York Post stuff. I mean, again, like the last long interview that he ever gave was with Alex Jones, yeah. who is like, for all anybody else can say about him, um, really is to a very certain group of people, the ultimate symbol of freedom from corporate power Sure, <laughs> that yes. we have in the United States. That we have in, in, in American life in some way, uh, which is not to say I approve of him at all, but like you know, the story of Google and you know and Twitter and Facebook and whoever oh, else yeah. like, actually allegedly censoring news to benefit a political party would seem to be exactly the sort of thing that the Matt Drudge who went on Alex Jones's show, oh sure, talking about Google's help hit, would be pretty incensed about.
0: I mean yeah and, there was, and you know nothing and the eat the rich angle the idea of of rich people right. behaving badly or or falling on hard times like this these are like you know short of a house of filth headline like we are yeah. we are in prime drudge zone there but and really I think the 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 meat of your article is the kind yeah. of deep dive into what I what I held you off of earlier and yeah. that is the idea that maybe this is some kind of personal slight maybe this is the shadowy buy off for which has been circulated in in journalist circles or media circles but maybe this is just a guy running out of gas and looking to cash in and how do you cash yeah. in if you have a very lightweight website that all that that relies <laughs> uh, uh, primarily as a a, a top notch link farm and that is the shadowy world of web advertising. So if you're going to to lay this out in brief for our audience, sure. uh, what did you learn? So what I learned is that online
1: advertising, which of course is a multi-billion dollar industry that supports, among other things, like all of the media at this point, is like an almost completely unregulated kind of gray zone um, where... You have kind of like certain folk ways and practices and standards and things like that, but they ultimately don't really mean all that much. Um, and if you want to cut certain corners, you can do it and kind of nobody is going to stop you. What What you see out of the Drudge Report, at least in the last couple of years, is an awful lot of corner cutting in ways that seem pretty suspicious. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Rocky Moss, who's a... Kind of an expert in online ad fraud, uh, discovered not only that there were ads that were hidden on the Drudge Report page. These are ads that somebody paid for that were not rendering. He also found that you couldn't even re- you couldn't find this out just using standard web developer tools. Like you would have to go through some extra jump through some extra hoop in order to discover this. Um, and uh, luckily, Rocky was, uh, you know, he had the forethought to put this into a video to demonstrate exactly
0: how this yeah. to work. And, and just, um, just, just to lay out for folks, when, when we say ad fraud here, what we mean is that, you know how you go on Amazon and you look for a hammer and you buy the hammer and then annoyingly for the next week, every website you go to is advertising that same hammer or uh, you are just finding all these ads uh, uh, following you? These are the kinds of things that they are that would show up that are being paid for to show up, but on the Drudge Report, it is hidden behind whatever. It, it is just that that clean sheet, except for the the main banner up there, remains yeah. unseen.
1: Right. And at least at the time that that Rocky checked the page. This was at, at some point in October. Um, but there were other kind of interesting, I guess you could call them irregularities as well. Um, there's this mislabeling of uh indirect ads as direct, excuse me, this mislabeling of reseller ads, um, as direct ads. Um, and and this is where it starts. It it gets a little bit kind of complicated here, but direct ads are ads that are only supposed to be run or that the buyer believes are only being run on a single site or a single interlinked network of sites. But you'll find ad IDs that show up on the drudge report showing up on tens of thousands of other websites. Yeah. Um, What's interesting, and this kind of gets to the, you know, the really kind of weird part of the story, um, Drudge's exclu- Drudge replaced his exclusive ad broker, the only company that had ever sold ads on the Drudge Report, or on behalf of the Drudge Report. Um, he replaced it in early 2019 with this very kind of mysterious one-person shop operating out of what seems to be a UPS store on the West Coast. Right. His previous company was like kind of a well-known online marketer with like a large office in Virginia, Um, drops them without explanation, picks up this other company. This other company is run by a woman who's married uh, to basically the guy in charge of the Drudge Report servers, at least up until 2019 at some point, Mm -hmm. might still be in charge of them now. Um, Meanwhile, the husband and wife also own RefDesk, which is the website founded by uh, Robert Drudge, who's Matt Drudge's father. Um, And they also have, uh, you know, uh, sort of exclusive rights to sell ads on on RefDesk as well. So suddenly, right, there's this, you know, this family on the West Coast that doesn't seem to have any real political anything in their background, um, who are now exclusively responsible for the business side of the Drudge Report and own the website started by matt drudge's father (laughs) Uh, and this happens around the same time uh, that you begin to see at least some of these advertising irregularities on the drudge report Um, the biggest irregularity which buzzfeed kind of noticed before i did but which uh, has continued long after buzzfeed wrote about it is that drudge gives these you know really great really frequent you know, very top of the page links uh, to this Armenia-based website called Denews, which basically only exists to plagiarize uh, New York Times articles and then publish them outside of the Times paywall. Um, and news gets almost all of its traffic from drudge referrals, like 96% of its traffic, according to Similar SimilarWeb, uh, comes from drudge report referrals. Uh, and this is something that also didn't begin until after... Drudge had kind of switched his advertising business over to this other company, which again is run by one person out of a PO box in Mountain View, <laughs> California. Uh, and remember this is like one of the most visited websites in the entire world, you know, that had traffic on par with like CNN or the New York times for a while there. Oh, it's yeah. like a very strange way of running things. Um, or it's a strange way of running things. If, Uh, your objective is putting out like a good website. It's maybe not a very strange way of running things. If you have some other sort of career plan, which perhaps he does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that part just was amazing. I, 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 because I've noticed those links, like I'm sure a lot of people who've gone to the Drudge Report in the past. And you're like, I wonder, because he often try to paywall jump in terms of finding where like, the New York Times or the L.A. Times or, or the Washington Post like already has in existence like a, a republishing agreements with like M.S.N. would yeah. be one of them or some random uh, uh, newspaper in Vermont like that'll publish you know this this thing on their website this story on their website he'd find it but that one was always odd and I, I guess nobody really know do we know who owns the Armenian website or or is this like a kickback situation? Buzzfeed found the guy
1: um you know they used some sort of an analysis of using Google AdSense ID numbers to figure out who the likely owner was. Google says or at least told Buzzfeed that they couldn't find any business relationship between DeNews and Drudge. Um using this sort of uh very uh, kind of laborious analysis um Rocky Moss, uh, who's the guy who found the hidden ads, did this yeah. uh, sort of try to figure out which ad IDs were shared by both the news and the Drudge Report. Um, and he found that there were something like there were like something like thirteen sites that they shared IDs with, which meant that there, or excuse me, there were like thirteen ad IDs that showed up on both sites, but they showed up on fifteen thousand other sites. But then interestingly. There were like 183 sites that also had all 13 IDs. And that included like a number of like right wing, kind of more infotainment like websites.
0: Yeah.
1: um, Along with a lot of sort of like local media. You know, like the, you know, the the newspaper of like some town in North Dakota shared all 13 of these ad IDs, reseller ad IDs, not direct with both the Drudge Report and the news, which shows that at least they're all in the same kind of economy in a weird way, probably unintended, but maybe not. Um, Again, it doesn't show they have a business relationship, but it shows that right the eyeballs that are flowing from one to another eventually are monetized in a way that benefit both interestingly
0: and that that is Um, that that's the fascinating side of it is that just in this bizarre wild west unregulated world where like the thing about drudge was that it's such a low overhead site it really only relied on on keen news value The, the eyes were already going to be on there he never really had to take money in the way that like let's say even andrew breitbart took money from the mercers and other people to start that empire that had a lot of overhead and office space and a dc headquarters and stuff like that he was just a dude in miami beach publishing links and uh uh, and and now it's like there's no trail there's no billionaire to piss off there's no uh uh, large-scale advertisers it was always just on on pure traffic alone which makes the mystery, all that more, deep right? And the
1: and the business side is managed by people who he probably personally knows.
0: Yeah, right. Because
1: again, the, the husband of the person who runs the ad business for the Drudge Report uh, was Matt Drudge's webmaster for a pretty long time. Um, and by the way, is also, I believe he's like the technical director of the office of the chief technical officer at Google. Right, so with with whom Drudge has kind of an interesting history, uh, because Google withheld, I think half of their what I heard at one point they withheld half of their advertising revenue from Drudge. Oh wow! Because Drudge was Drudge was messing around with the, his page refresh rate in a way that Google believed was you know artificially inflating ad impressions. So, in, in a weird way, again, if it's if this actually is kind of his retirement plan in some way or if it's a way for him to kind of like take a step back from this thing that he built, you know, you could do a lot worse than the arrangement that he seems to have figured out with his, you know, collaborators on the West coast, let's call them.
0: And I guess that's, that's the one thing that still remains a puzzler is that if this is a cash out, right. If this is just him taking the money and run He knows that 2020 is going to be a massive election. He knows that the eyes eyeballs are going to be on him. Why also do the ideological turn? Like, like, unless like, like like why not play the hits, do the MAGA dance for another year and a half cash out as much as you can use all those crazy links. And then, you know, next thing you know, he posts a, a a playlist uh, on Twitter before he deletes it of a (laughs) bunch of Miley Cyrus songs and he's gone. (laughs) I don't. I don't know. I mean, that's a that's
1: a great question. Like, was his disillusionment with Trump totally sincere? Did it come from ideology? Did it come from a personality clash? Had uh, you know, had Drudge really just kind of checked out a long time ago? Yeah. Had he actually been looking for a step down in 2017 and 2018 when he began kind of getting disillusioned with with Trump? I mean, that would make sense, right? Like he had to figure that after he broke with Trump that his audience was going to decline. Yeah. Um, which it did pretty precipitously. Uh, you know, it's very hard to kind of, uh, you know, turn on your readership and still keep them around. Like that's a trick that not many people have ever been able to pull. Uh, you know, how premeditated this was, what effect it kind of had on what the site looks and feels like again, as with so many things with drudge, it's anybody's guess. Um, you know the the clue's point i think in a in a certain kind of direction here and there
0: uh yeah but
1: again it just goes to show you how much of the media um and also how much of the media's kind of image of it itself was filtered through sort of one person who not that many people <laughs> really understand that well
0: yeah yeah who by all accounts is his own character is, is just is, is his own, his own kind of weird personality. Uh, all right. One yeah. last question before I let you go. Sure. Uh, what has been the reaction from within your media circles to your article?
1: Um, I've gotten, it's interesting. I've gotten like a lot more reaction to this one than I have to anything I've written for a few months. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've been kind of surprised that people care that much about drudge. Uh, but again, it, it gets to this, it's, it's very psychologically fascinating, right? Like people in media spent such a long time trying to figure out what this one guy wanted. Yeah. Um, and it had the effect of kind of flattering their own sense of importance in a way. Uh, not just Matt Drudges, but kind of the, the media as a whole. Uh, you know, the the idea that you you could just break through this one single gatekeeper and then Suddenly, you could be a name overnight, right, or, or something like that. Um, and it, it just goes to show how hard it is to sort of deprogram that. Like you know, the editors and journalists of ten and fifteen years ago still have this one guy looming in their in their psyche, in a way that they can't deprogram. <laughs> um, and it's going to be the exact same thing for Twitter in another thirty years, or for I, Facebook, or I, for, I, it's I, just yeah, I, I yeah. totally
0: think that that's part of it part part of the nobody was really able to replace drudge until social media social yeah. media was the first time you know you, we saw blogs we saw modernized websites we saw a be- better video and resolution and youtube nobody could scratch that itch until we got th- this drudge on steroids of of twitter and and facebook and obviously that is part of it and yet there is again an entire generation entire generation yeah. of conservative media entire generation of all media that have this different relationship with this one weird dude
1: but the really brilliant thing about drudge and the reason that people still care about him and maybe the most damning part of this whole story really yeah is that drudge succeeded by appealing to journalist vanity yep right which you know the I again, the idea that you just you know he'd be patting, you know, handing out cookies basically, and patting people on the head if you he liked them. yep, <laughs> essentially. And there was this, you know this quest to be liked by this one guy and to figure out what this one guy wanted. And now kind of all of the media is like that, except for the entire world in some way. Yeah, you have that same dynamic playing out on Twitter every single day. Um, I participate in it. I tweet all the time. Like, I completely understand it. Uh, but a lot of that began, a lot of kind of the psychology of the vanity of the media class began uh, with Matt Drudge in a weird way. I don't Or think- at least the modern iteration of it began with him.
0: I don't think there's a better way that we could end this uh, interview uh, because I think that was very, very well said. Armin Rosen has joined us. He, of course, is a writer for Tablet Magazine. Go check out the article for which we just talked about. If you have not read it, shame on you. Matt Drudge logs (laughs) off. Uh, It is on tabletmag.com right now. Armin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on and that'll wrap it up for us today thanks again to armin rosen for joining us again you gotta read it's mandatory reading that mad drudge article i i I don't know any mad drudge article i love it's my media my 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 heritage my media heritage i have to care about mad drudge i don't make the rules Here's what are the rules: is that at the end of the show we read our Titanic $10 tier? I love you, TNT, Dr. G, the Jen, K or Kathy Mac, Headphones Neil, Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike. What happened to Tex? Get a bucket and a mop. Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Justin Egan, Dot Com Junkie, Jason, Rob. Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren Kitchen of Hack Five, Adam, Jacob, Olin and Angela, DL, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, Ed the Goose, just another pilot, Frozen Summer, Jay Pink, Andrew, and James. If you wanna join their ranks, it is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You wanna keep up with all of the uh, all of, of the, the the politics politics politic wares, right? Our live streams, our newsletter, our podcast. Then you go to px3tweets on Twitter. It's easy. You're going to follow me. I'm Justin R. Young. You're going to write into the show. It's theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only program that dares talk about Yes! Three!